Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any hosts or guests' individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening. My name is Dr. Richard Selznick, and I want to welcome you to School Struggles. I am proud to be a part of the Coffee Clutch team. On School Struggles, we talk about a range of topics, including learning disabilities, dyslexia, special education, ADHD, and a whole host of other interesting, interesting topics that affect your child. By way of introduction, I am a child psychologist and the director of the Cooper Learning Center, which is a part of the Department of Pediatrics, Cooper University Healthcare, located in Voorhees, New Jersey. I am the author of two books, both published by Sentient Publications. The first one's called The Shutdown Learner, Helping Your Academically Discouraged Child, and the more recently published book called School Struggles. And you can learn more about these at my website, which is www.shutdownlearner, that's one word, shutdownlearner.com, and that site is loaded with blogs and lots of other tidbits for parents that are free for you, So, and the books are also available at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. Uh, I'm excited to have Dennis McAndrews in the room with us. And uh, I've known Dennis for a lot of years. Dennis is an attorney who has worked for over 30 years in the public and private sectors in several roles in the fields of estate planning and disability law. Dennis is the founder and managing partner of McAndrews Law Offices, PC, an 18-attorney law firm with offices in Berwyn, Pennsylvania, Scranton, Wyoming, Wilmington, Delaware, and Washington, D.C., which regularly represents individuals and their families in a variety of areas, including estate planning, administration, special education matters, special needs trusts, elder law, abuse of vulnerable persons, guardianships, right to treatment cases, and injury cases. He frequently acts as a consultant to the other public and private attorneys with regard to estate planning, administration, disability, and special education issues. I've known Dennis years ago. We shared a number of cases uh, relative to, you know, IEP, special education, that kind of thing. And I think Dennis is just a great person to have to talk to us about. We're going to have two different interviews. This first one is devoted to uh, things you need to know about IEPs. So welcome, Dennis. Thanks very much, Richard. Thrilled to be here with you. Great to have you. So um, I know you have, you know, top 
tips for parents. Uh, you know, if we have if we have the time, we'll go through all of them and we'll see where we are. So, what yeah. help us get started? You know, this is a very you know I, I never take anything for granted. I, I'm already using jargon by saying. IEPs. So tell you know, just for some people out there might, might not know what an IEP is. Help us get started on this. Sure, sure. An IEP is an individualized education plan, uh, which is a, a plan for student with a disability who needs specially designed instruction in order to make meaningful educational progress. Uh, sometimes I think people who are are immersed in special ed, like myself and yourself. Uh, uh, think that IEPs just kind of, you know, landed uh, on the planet in 1975 with the Education for All Handicapped Children Act. And to be sure, that's when the federal law required IEPs. But IEPs are really based uh, on a medical model. If you look at what happens when you go into a hospital, uh, they assess you, they develop a, uh, a treatment plan for you. They determine how they're going to measure your progress as to when you can leave the hospital. Uh, they identify the exact services that you'll you'll get in every realm, and then they'll uh, have kind of an exit strategy. Uh, how you know what, what will happen after you leave the hospital, and all of those characteristics are present in an IEP: the assessment, uh, setting goals. Uh, identifying the services that will be provided, identifying who's going to provide those services, how, when, and where, and uh, how, how we're going to measure progress. So it's very similar, really, to a medical model that has existed for years, and frankly, even for a business model. Uh, all of those characteristics in any kind of a solid plan to get you from one place to another are part of an IEP, and they're just very specific in the um, uh, in the federal law. And happy to go through them uh, and identify, you know, what parents should look for in developing a good IEP. Would you call it a roadmap? Is it is that a one way of looking at it? I think it's an excellent uh, analogy. It, 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 you know, it's not supposed to be an entire curriculum. It's not supposed to set out everything that happens every day, but it should set up that type of roadmap that you are describing and discussing, where uh, you know uh, the path that you're going to take and the end point that you're trying to get to. What are the what are the because you know as you know and I'm sure you on your side you know you you get parents sort of coming in, I'll, I'll get them frustrated, you know, come in frustrated, and, you know, they'll, they'll feel that the IEP is either not meeting their needs or, I don't know, it, it isn't clear enough. What are some of the top frustrations that you find for parents? Well, yeah, I, you know, I always tell people, no one comes to our special ed law firm for a checkup. They always come in a sense of desperation. You know, mm -hmm. the, before parents come to McAndrews Law, they have tried everything that they know how to do. They've tried to work collaboratively with the district. They've met with the teachers. They've met with the psychologists. They've met with the principal, usually. They've oftentimes have had uh, sometimes dozens of team meetings, and they just feel that things aren't being done what's necessary for their child to make meaningful progress. And the progress that that is expected of kids with disabilities in uh, uh, Pennsylvania and Delaware and New Jersey 
Uh, the, the courts have said it's supposed to be meaningful progress, uh, and by that we mean progress that is designed to move the child, consistent with the child's potential, to a reasonable level of independence and self-sufficiency. So it's not trivial progress. It's not uh, limited, minimal progress. It's meaningful progress consistent with potential to move towards independence and self-sufficiency. Which sounds to my ears like a great phrase, but I could also see that that phrase would be fraught with all kinds of danger. Sure, and it's it's not a precise phrase. You know, there's a lot of play in the joints and a lot of room for interpretation. So that's, you know, as you've indicated, when people come to us at Andrew's Law because uh, they've tried everything on their own. And, and the, the types of frustrations that we see very frequently are kids who simply aren't reading uh, at or near a level that's reasonable for them. And, you know, through research now, we know that most, the overwhelming majority of kids, and even kids with disabilities, with proper instruction, can read at or near grade level, but they have to get appropriate instruction. And certainly we can talk about that when we talk about uh, specially designed instruction that goes into an IEP. So that's one issue. Oftentimes kids are being disciplined. Uh, they have a disability and the district is threatening to you know, suspend them for long periods of time or threatening to even expel them even though the conduct is an outgrowth of their disability and they really shouldn't be suspended or um, uh, expelled for that reason. So, And frankly, many times parents call us for unidentified kids, kids who have never been identified, don't have an IEP, but they're about to be expelled. And the first thing we always do is ask the district to evaluate them because it's very difficult to expel a kid with the disabilities. And even if you can expel the kid with the disabilities, the school district still remains obligated to provide a free, appropriate public education. So um, that's, that's that term which comes up. That I want to I want to kind of punctuate that uh, sure. that term. For the, uh, it's called FAPE out there. Right. Uh, that free and appropriate public education, right? Yes, and and that's uh, that uh, that's the standard that an IEP needs to make. It, uh, it it has to be free, it has to be appropriate, which means reasonably calculated to afford meaningful progress, uh, consistent with potential and uh, towards independence, as we've been saying. Uh, public, in other words, it has to be provided by a public entity, be it a public school or a public charter school, uh, and the education is obvious has to educate the child so the child can move towards independence. So, and that word appropriate is another one. That's there. there are, so, so people listening out there, I think that I, I have always found it challenging. Okay, is this an appropriate education that the child is receiving? It doesn't necessarily mean it's the best that you you might come up with, or you know that word you know kind of appropriate and meaningful. They both seem to be like there's a lot of room for uh, discussion around those terms. And there is, uh, but at the same time, what really needs to be done to determine what appropriate and meaningful for a child truly is, is to look at where the child is, mm -hmm. identify what the child's potential is, and then identify instruction, which is uh, is likely to move the child towards uh, levels of achievement that are predictable uh, and that uh, are something that will allow that young person 
to move from grade to grade in a way that uh, they're moving towards hopefully employment uh, and uh, reasonable levels of achievement. So now that, excuse me, now that we've laid the, the groundwork a bit, what are some of the McAndrews top tips or things, top things to consider relative to IEPs? What are, uh, what are some of the top points that you bring to parents? Yeah, and and by the way, on our website of uh, mcandrewslaw.com, we we have actually an outline of the top 10 rules to develop an appropriate IEP, and we'll kind of synthesize them in our discussion today, Richard. Um, uh, The the first thing is is that you need a solid evaluation. Uh, And, you know, you can't expect to walk into an IEP meeting uh, unprepared or without a really good evaluation and expect to create a, a proper IEP. Just like I said earlier, uh, IEPs are based upon a medical model. So if you were to walk into a hospital uh, with some kind of an illness uh, into the emergency room, and the doctor just looked at you, asked a few questions, never ran any tests, uh, and just you know asked about your symptoms, never put his hands on you, never uh, got did any blood work, uh, didn't do any you know medical screening. You, and said, well, here's how we're going to treat you, you would be suspect. Uh, and for kids with disabilities who usually have very complex profiles, it's pretty rare that you have a kid who just has one issue and one issue alone. You know, kids with ADHD have executive functioning issues. They oftentimes have a social or emotional issue that needs to be addressed. Uh, uh, They may have health issues uh, that need to be addressed through medication or otherwise. And and so the the key is really to get a, um, uh, uh, a really solid evaluation. If the district hasn't done it, either ask the district to do it or demand an independent evaluation. Uh, If the school district's evaluation is inadequate, then uh, the the parent has a right to an independent evaluation at public expense. And once the parent requests that, the district has to do one of two things. They have to either give the parent the evaluation, uh, you know, the the uh, the payment for the evaluation, or they have to uh, uh, themselves, the district, seek a due process hearing to justify their own IEP. Either way, uh, the district, you know, resources are on the line. So, you know, uh, parents should not be afraid to at least investigate the need for an independent evaluation. Um, uh, it it uh, and the district, by the way, cannot. Uh, say, oh, here's the list of evaluators who are approved. That doesn't work. Um, they have to provide. Um, uh, they have to provide either a list of everybody who can do the evaluation, or uh, uh, just say to the parents, you pick someone who's qualified, and we will pay for it or go to due process. So, uh, almost all the time when we're involved and we request an independent evaluation, the district uh, uh, grants it and pays for it. We rarely go to a hearing on that issue. Right, right, right. So, so, so a parent can find someone who isn't on the list. You're saying I, absolutely. I think that's part. 
Right. The district cannot, and by the way, districts still sometimes do it, and it's it's troubling to me because the law is very clear that if they provide a list, they have to provide a list of literally everyone in the geographic area that is qualified to provide the uh, the evaluation. And in most geographic areas, even ones that are not uh, uh, particularly near an urban area, there are usually multiple appropriate evaluators, uh, such as yourself, who can do that evaluation. And uh, so, you know, if a district gives a list and it's an incomplete list, that's that's uh, incorrect under the law, and they absolutely should not be saying uh, you have to pick someone from the list. Interesting. All right, so point number one is that you need a solid evaluation. What's our Absolutely. Point? Yeah. Uh, the, the the second point is uh, in developing an IEP. So you got the let's say you've got the the solid evaluation. Then you're mm-hmm. ready to go into an IEP meeting and to meaningfully discuss that child because you know what's cooking. You, you know what's working and not working for that kid. And so you're not in a situation where uh, you're you're flying blind. But you know in a Typically, what happens in an IP meeting is that you're identifying the child's present educational levels first, and you want to do that in every area, academic, emotional, behavioral, social, physical, that impacts the child. You then develop goals that uh, you know are measurable for the one-year period of the IEP. Uh, but uh, And that kind of brings me to the second, uh, I guess, highlighted point that I would raise, which is... Uh, have solid progress monitoring. Um, and that's kind of a forgotten stepchild. Oftentimes, progress monitoring in IEPs simply reads, um, uh, will, uh, the progress monitoring will be report cards three or four times a year. That is way too late. Uh, there's research that shows that kids who get frequent progress monitoring achieve better. Why? Because, one, the child knows he or she is being assessed and tends to focus and work a bit harder. Two, the teacher knows the kid is being assessed and tends to put more emphasis on making sure that the instruction is is being uh, successful. And third, if the progress monitoring is showing no progress or minimal progress, you can adjust the instruction so that it's it's more designed to meet uh, the child where he or she is. So uh, progress monitoring, it, while it's it's something that is kind of a throwaway to many people, is actually very important. And we really encourage parents to, uh, in the IEP, to have, uh, um, you know, an IEP that has frequent progress monitoring every couple of weeks. And, and it, it doesn't have to be, you know, a, uh, a lengthy, uh, you know, uh, dissertation mm-hmm. about how the child is doing. It can be a checklist with, uh, you know, uh, uh, with some comments every couple of weeks, um, and it, it can go a long way. So it could be, you know, uh, brief screenings of some kind. It doesn't have to be, what you're saying, it doesn't have to be an in-depth assessment for progress monitoring. In fact, progress monitoring is in some ways the opposite of in-depth assessments. Right. right. Yes, exactly right. And it it, it is just such a, a very positive thing. Now, just to remind listeners, I'm speaking with Dennis McAndrews, who's a, among many other 
hats he wears as an attorney. He's a special education attorney. He can be contacted at uh, www.mcandrewslaw.com. That's mcandrewslaw.com. Dennis, do you want to provide a phone number for people to get a hold of you? Uh, sure. In uh, the uh, Berwyn area, we are at, uh, or in the f- southeastern uh, Pennsylvania, we're 610-648-9300. Uh, uh, we have offices in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, the Reading area in Wyoming, also in Scranton, and uh, in Washington, D.C. for the, the Tri uh, area there, and all those phone numbers are on our website. Great. Um, so, so progress monitoring and going to the meeting, um, do now the meeting we i think one piece we left out was the idea of just getting classified just going to the meeting doesn't necessarily or automatically mean that the child is going to receive services correct uh you know the uh it, it the part of the IEP meeting is determining does the child in fact uh need specially designed instruction to to get an IEP you need to have a disability, uh, one of the categories of disabilities, such as a specific learning disability, uh, an emotional disturbance, uh, some sort of uh, significant health impairment, uh, intellectual disability. Uh, there's actually, uh, you know, over a dozen actual categories that uh, you need to fit into uh, as a student with a disability, and we'll talk about that some more in our next session on uh, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. But uh, in order to have an IEP, you must both have a a disability and require specially designed instruction. And and in many ways, that's where the rubber meets the road for for these kids with disabilities, because that's what they're actually going to be receiving every day uh, in in the classroom, whether it's a special ed classroom or regular ed classroom. Uh, the special ed law requires uh, programming to be undertaken in the least restrictive environment. Uh, it doesn't have to be. Some people think, oh, if he has an IEP, he's going to be labeled and he's going to be in a special ed classroom, and that's that's really not true. The, uh, the uh, um, Special ed, specially designed services can happen anywhere, uh, including a regular ed classroom. But the specially designed – oh, go ahead. You have a question there, Richard? No, no, go ahead. Yep, okay. I'm on a roll here. So. <laughs> yep, I'm letting you go. Uh, okay. Um, since 2005, uh, there's been a major change in special ed law, which requires specially designed instruction to be uh, based on peer-reviewed research, meaning – that for the first time ever in our you know 40 year history of special education in America uh the services that are provided are supposed to be based on science based upon peer reviewed research so that kids with dyslexia for instance should be getting a program which has been proven to be effective for kids with that disability uh prior to 2005 the district had uh, the local school district or the public charter school had virtually, you know, unchecked uh, uh, discretion about what to put into an IEP. Now, however, uh, under IDEA, it has to be based on peer-reviewed research, and it, it has taken a lot of effort to get many school districts to uh, use truly research-based, specially designed instruction. And it's a fight we're doing every day. How does something like in-class support 
factor in uh, as as a, a recommendation. I get that a lot from parents. Oh, he's receiving in-class support, and I'll be like, well, okay, I know where he is. I you right. know, but what is he getting? I'm not quite sure what he's getting. You know, he's well, he's getting support. Well, what does that mean? And how does that factor into this specially designed instruction? Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, it's a great question, regulation. Richard. And, and yeah, and uh, what we find is that it can mean a million things. It can be a co-taught class where the special ed teacher is in the class, working sometimes in small groups with the kids, uh, oftentimes with the kids with special needs. It could mean a one-on-one aid for a child. It could mean an aid for just the special ed kids in the class. It could mean an aid uh, uh, for the, the entire class. So what is important really, is that the uh, it be identified clearly in the IEP. There's a section uh, referred to as supports for school personnel. And uh, if they just say, you know, the child will receive additional support, that should be defined uh, because uh, one, of the, one of the biggest things we do when we're involved with families in the IEP process is try to make the IEP clear and the services that the district is going to provide accountable. So that's why we look to progress monitoring. That's why we look for specificity in the IEP about things like what will the specially designed instruction look like? What is the peer-reviewed model that's going to be used, uh, the research-based model for the reading or writing or math or behavior? So uh, that, uh, that type of support needs to be defined, and it can take any one of a number of characteristics. Boy, I'll tell you, Dennis, I, I get uh, parents coming in and bringing all the previous evaluations and reports and the IEPs, and the one document that I, that I can't read, <laughs> that I, mm-hmm. I just can't understand it or make heads or tails, is the IEP. Uh, yeah. To me, it's all, it just washes over my head because it's to me, it always looks like a boilerplate of check, 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 move on, and I rarely find it a particularly individualized. I mean, it's just rarely. I'm not trying to knock anyone or any practice. Sure. It's just the document itself, uh, to me, is almost unreadable. So I think you know, I'm not sure. Have you you know have you seen that kind of thing out there in terms of the way these documents are written? Well, yeah, and, and what one of uh, the worst things I think to happen to IEP development is over the past 10 years, IEPs have come to be computer-generated documents. Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, the, the, by a keystroke, things can be added to, for yeah. example, the specially designed instruction or the goals. And as a result, many of the IEPs are becoming actually too long for anyone yeah. to reasonably implement. And, in fact, there was a case a couple of years, well, years ago in Pennsylvania – uh, hearing officer found that the IEP was so detailed that it could not be implemented. And it's so detailed because it was so easy for the school district to put a thousand details in it by simply hitting keystrokes uh, on a computer and adding, you know, 30 pieces of specially designed instruction for an individual child, and no teacher is going to be able to do that. You know, they're just protecting uh, themselves from the attorneys, Dennis. You know that. That's what they're doing, I right? I do. I do. And <laughs> the irony is the attorneys is that, have gotten in the mix on this. <laughs> well, this is true, but the irony is, is in trying to protect themselves from the attorneys, they actually lost the case because yeah. the hearing officer said the, the IEP is so over specific that it's unimplementable. So, 
Uh, the next thing that I would uh, would mention is uh, the placement. You know, the, uh, it is one of the hallmarks of IDEA that placements are supposed to be in the least restrictive environment. And again, many parents are always worried about the um, the uh, the child being stigmatized in special ed, and especially for kids who are not seriously disabled and are in regular ed part of the time. Uh, it's important to remember that special, specially designed instruction can occur in regular education. education. It can occur, frankly, in any uh, in any setting. It can be in it could be in a regular ed. It could be in a special ed classroom. It could be one on one. It could be at home even or after school. So there's no limit on that. What's in in brief terms? Again, it's one of these terms that that people will hear. What does that term mean? Least restrictive environment. The uh, least restrictive environment means uh, the, uh, that the child will be educated to the maximum extent possible with non-disabled students. So so long as the program is appropriate uh, and can be implemented with non-disabled students, it should be implemented with non-disabled students. So that uh, And least restrictive environment is a requirement of both IDEA and Section 504. Uh, and, and so you must start from the point in designing an IEP that the child will be educated to the maximum extent possible with uh, non-disabled kids. And if services have to be imported, such as an aid, such as a behavior management plan, uh, to allow the child to be in uh, a regular education classroom, the district's under an obligation to do that. In a brief time, and I know that there are so many other points, and we're going to, in the second interview, uh, talk about uh, 504 plans. Uh, what about parents... What about parents in, in a, in a short, brief time? Um, what if they don't have an attorney? You know, it seems to me it's so complicated on some levels, and they don't all have access to a Dennis McAndrews or to or or they don't have the uh, wherewithal. What 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 can those parents do? How do they a prepare themselves for these meetings? Yeah. First of all, uh, I would note that we do provide free consultations. And uh, so parents, to get through our door, don't need any money. Provide free consultations. And frankly, most of the time, families have a case to bring because, they, as I say, they've tried everything and they're in desperation. Uh, but if they, you know, let's say they don't even want to contact an attorney, there are so many uh, resources out there. Our website, mcandrewslaw.com, has an enormous uh, amount of information to help families. The Education Law Center, um, Rights Law, are all websites that have so much information um, uh, that can help parents. And get educated, uh, uh, stand up for your kid, uh, be be resourceful, be cooperative and collaborative. But you know, on something you disagree with, stand your ground. And there are resources. A lot of families we represent without charge. And uh, I don't think we're the only ones, and so there are resources out there. Right. Yeah, I want to, uh, you know, uh, also support. There's so much out there. It's incredible. I mean, from the time that uh, Dennis and I started in our respective professions to now, it's just amazing how much is available to a parent. You know, on Dennis's webpage, McAndrewsLaw.com, um, that rights law that starts with a W W R I G H T S rights law. 
Facebook.com, and there's so many other, other websites. Dennis, I want to thank you for tonight's discussion, and we're going to have another interview very briefly in a short time. Um, we will be talking about 504 plans. So, again, if you would like to get a hold of Dennis McAndrews, he's at mcandrewslaw.com. And, uh, and uh, thank you for listening tonight. Uh, visit my website, shutdownlearner.com. Um, and we will talk to you soon and see you another time. Thanks, Dennis. Thank you so much, Richard. Thanks. Take care. Good evening. My name is Dr. Richard Selznick, and I want to welcome you to School Struggles. I'm proud to be a part of the Coffee Clutch team, and on School Struggles, we talk about a range of topics, including learning disabilities, dyslexia, special education, 